You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you're joining us online, thanks so much for joining us uh, digitally. Thanks so much for being here with us today. If it's your very first time with us, we'd love to offer you a gift this morning, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle. That's our gift to you. You can get it over at the info desk if it's your first time with us today. If you'd like more information about our church, uh, if you would like a name tag and don't have one yet, if you'd like us to be praying for you, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Uh, I cannot tell you how pleased I am with all those youth discipleship groups. My daughter is in one of like 27 sixth grade girls, not quite, but it's a lot, uh, who are very loud, and uh, I just am so grateful for her leaders and uh, the young women who are pouring into her. And I would just say, parents, if you've got a kid that age, you get to set the tone for what's important in your house, and you make your kids do all sorts of things. You make them do extracurriculars, you make them go to school, you make them consider making them do this too. At least try it out. Okay, uh, this is a, a way of showing them that God's people matter and the asset it will be to you to have reinforcements for what you want to accomplish spiritually in your house is just huge. So I would encourage you uh, to consider that this, uh, today. Well, as we begin, uh, you know, I really feel the need to pray. It's been surreal just watching what's happening in Europe right now, as I'm sure you've all been glued to the news as well. And uh, this is a time for us to pray as well as we go to God's Word. So let's just pray for our world during this time. So today, God, before we we go to your Word, uh, we think about your world. And as the nations rage, we look to you, Jesus, because you are enthroned over the kingdoms of men. So, Lord, we pray that this conflict would cease, that evil would be judged, that peace would prevail quickly, God, that this conflict would cease. And Lord, we we think especially of our brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord, who are fleeing right now, who are in danger. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. Would you watch over them? Would you bring them to safety? Would you give them great courage right now to hold true to their testimony in you? And now, God, we ask that you would teach us from your word which gives us such assurance that you do govern the affairs of this world. We pray it for your sake, Jesus. Amen. We had a great story this week. Uh, Back in 1991, Gerald Ratner gave a speech at a prestigious business conference. At that time, he was CEO of Ratner's, which was one of the largest jewelers in Great Britain. And uh, to warm up the crowd... Ratner decided to open with a little bit of humor. And he said this, people say, how can you sell this jewelry for such a low price? I say, because it is total junk. That's my paraphrase. He went on to crack a few more jokes about the the jewelry brand. It was funny. It It was funny. The audience ate it up. They thought it was hilarious. The shareholders did not. In fact, once word got out about the speech, Ratner's shares plummeted, and in a short while, the company lost a billion dollars in value. Ratner's name was taken off the label, 
A year later, he was kicked out of his own company, and his life has never been the same since. And that got me thinking about Ecclesiastes 10.1 that says, a little folly, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Little things uh, have shockingly huge consequences. And I think that should change the way I view sin in my own life because most people know to avoid the big ones, right? We're all trying to not kill people or rob banks or kick puppies or, or things like that. We want to avoid the big things. In all likelihood, it's not the big thing that's going to get you. It's the little thing. It's the little thing that you keep making concessions for, the little thing you overlook, the little thing that ultimately is going to form your character and have huge consequences on you and the people around you. And according to the Bible, the heart of sin, even the littlest sin, is pride. Every sin starts with, with pride, and pride is simply being curved in on yourself. Pride is self-importance, self-will, self-preoccupation. Remember, remember that song? Maybe you grew up singing, I exalt thee. I always think of pride as I exalt me. That's, that's what pride sings in your heart every day. Me. And that's the basic disease besetting humanity. It's what causes conflict in the story of Esther. It's all rooted in pride. And it's ultimately what precipitates conflict in the story of the Bible and in the story of our own lives. So how do you know if you're prideful? Because little concessions to pride have huge consequences. That's, that's really the point of Esther 3. Esther 3 is a tale of pride, prejudice, providence, all of those things together. And it's really about how two very prideful men create huge problems for God's people. How do you know if you're prideful? How do you catch it at the root? Uh, the passage, I think it gives us three diagnostics. Here's three tests to run on yourself. First test is this. How do you feel when you're disregarded? When you're looked over, when you're not acknowledged, being disregarded for position, how do I respond? How do I respond when I'm disrespected by people? That's test number two. When I'm offended, insulted, how quickly can I get over it? Test three is being dismissive of providence. How do I think about the future? How do I plan for it? And does God have any role in dictating what I ultimately do? These are three great tests to see the little ways we can be preoccupied with self. So let's look at them. First, disregard it. How do you know if you're proud? Well, how do you feel when you're overlooked? That's where this starts. Chapter 3 begins this way. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, maybe, I don't know, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Let's stop there. Uh, chapter 2, things are going well for the Jews. Esther becomes queen. Mordecai follows in a, 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 foils an assassination plot against the king. Things are going well for the Jews, but sometime after that... We get chapter 3, and chapter 3 introduces us to the conflict in the story, 
And here in, chat, in verse 1, we see the villain, Haman. Uh, he is one of the purest villains in the Old Testament. The narrator later calls him the enemy of all Jews. That's Haman. In fact, when Jews read this story during Purim, the, the festival that Esther commemorates, every time Haman's name is read, everyone boos and hisses. You don't need to do that this morning, but... He's clearly the bad guy. For some reason, the king elevates Haman to second in command in the empire. We have no idea why. It doesn't tell us why Haman was promoted, but it does tell us how Mordecai felt about Haman's promotion. Everyone bows down, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Here's the scene. The king presents Haman at the grand entrance of his palace. He commands all the officials to pay homage to Haman, and everyone does except Mordecai. The king's servants see it. They begin to interrogate Mordecai. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? His lips are sealed. He doesn't say why he did it. He just tells them that he is a Jew. And now verse 4 is notoriously difficult to translate. Uh, Here's one way it could be translated, though. The king's servants, they're interrogating, interrogating. Finally, the king's servants told Haman about Mordecai's defiance to see if Mordecai's deed would be tolerated. For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Now, if that's the way we should read this, here's what happens. Mordecai is not giving up any information as to why he refused to bow, but, but he does tell these servants that he's a Jew. And that's significant because last week in chapter 2, what does Esther hide about herself? Her Jewishness, right? That she's a Jew. So, so there's some sense already that it might be dangerous to be a Jew in the Persian Empire. There might be some animosity. For some reason, we don't know why, Mordecai outs himself. He says he is a Jew, doesn't explain why he refuses to bow. And now the king's officials bring this to Haman, and they want to see how he's going to respond. That this person has refused to bow, who's from this marginalized, potentially despised Part of society. Will Haman tolerate this? Now, the million-dollar question. Why doesn't Mordecai bow? What's the deal? We want to know what the king's servants do. Why didn't you do it? Right? And Mordecai doesn't tell us, and the narrator doesn't tell us. So why? Well, there's three ways to interpret them, and two of them are wrong, and one of them's right. Well, I think it's right. The, the way this has often been interpreted throughout church history is as a positive thing. It's good Mordecai didn't bow. Some think that, that Haman is presenting himself as this godlike figure, and so Mordecai refuses to, to worship Haman, kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, and so it's this great stand against idolatry and this great act of courage by Mordecai. Uh, The problem with that is the text never says that, and bowing was a customary way to honor people in the ancient Near East. It was a way to honor people in Israel. Jews bow to authorities in other places, so it's not clear at all that idol worship has anything to do with this. So it's not clear this is positive. 
So that's one interpretation. Uh, another interpretation would be that, that Mordecai's refusal is rooted in bad blood. There's actually a tribal conflict going on here. As we'll see, Haman is a descendant of King Agag. I just want to spit phlegm as I say that. Agag, who's the, who's the king of the Amalekites? And if you read the Old Testament, the Amalekites are like arch enemy of Israel's people, really bad. And so maybe Mordecai is refusing to bow because he goes, this guy's an Amalekite. We've got bad blood and this tribal conflict continues. Now, that conflict between Israel and Amalek, it is important for understanding the text, but again, there's no evidence that that's why Mordecai is refusing to bow. Here's the other thing you got to keep in mind. Mordecai isn't just defying Haman. Who's he defying? The king. This act is primarily directed against the king because the king gave the order to do it. And so what would explain Mordecai's defiance to the king? That's the million-dollar question. And I think the most likely explanation of this is this, that Mordecai is resentful against the king because he has exalted Haman. Now, as we saw last week, there are no really clean heroes in this story, right? Right? We want the story to be heroes and villains, but as we saw last week, none of the heroes in the story are all that heroic, and it's important we don't clean up and domesticate Mordecai here. Because think of the context. Chapter 2 ends, and Mordecai does the king a solid, right? Like, people are going to kill the king. Mordecai figures out what's going on. He informs the king. He foils the assassination plot. Mordecai clearly is vying for influence in the kingdom. He wants power. And, and man, that is like promotion opportunity number one, right? The king is paranoid. Who can I trust? Who can he trust? Mordecai, right? And in Mordecai's mind, you know, as we're reading the Bible, if you put yourself as a Jew reading this story, you kind of know how this story is going to go if you've read the Old Testament, right? Like in the Old Testament, Often, a Jew will end up in a foreign land and become trustworthy and get promoted with what? Power. Right? Think about Joseph. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He gets elevated to what? Second in command, right? And then Daniel. He proves a trustworthy advisor to Darius. He gets a what? Second in command, right? Again, so there's this theme throughout the Old Testament. You go into a foreign land as a Jew. You win the trust of the emperor. You get power. What's Mordecai thinking? Here's my guess. Oh, man. <laughs> Promotion's coming. Now, does Mordecai get promoted? Yeah, at the end of the story. But he doesn't get promoted here. And I think the, the only way I can explain this is that Mordecai is incensed because he is overlooked. And there is no reason to interpret this positively. There's lots of reasons to interpret this negatively. And as we see, Mordecai's refusal to bow in this situation, his anger, it causes and precipitates massive problems for the Jews. As readers, the minute we see Mordecai's refusal, we should be thinking, oh no. Because remember chapter one? Vashti, right? She refuses the king. What happens? The king makes a decree for all women in the empire, right? This kingdom has a tendency to blow things out of proportion. So Mordecai the Jew refuses in order of the king. What should we think as readers? Oh, no. 
This is going to have bad implications for the Jewish people. And that turns out to be right. Mordecai's stubbornness, his prideful display, his refusal to honor, and by the way, in the New Testament, it says honor governing officials because they're governing officials, right? Not because they're particularly honorable, and praise God, because if that were the case, it'd be very hard to ever honor someone in government, right? But the point is you honor the position. Mordecai doesn't do it. He's overlooked. It's a great question to ask yourself, how do I respond when someone fails to acknowledge me. That's the first instance of pride. When, when, when I should be recognized, when I should be honored, when I should be regarded and I am not, how do I respond? Does it ever bother you that other people get acknowledged? Other people get recognized? Especially when you deserve it? One reason that that's true is because of pride. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said it so well that he said, it is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Right? Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. You know how you can't stand that person who's the life of the room and the center of attention at parties? One reason probably for that is that I like being that role. And now I have competition. And so the question you need to ask yourself is when someone fails to promote, fails to acknowledge, do I resent the person? That's option A. Or can I trust God that God has the ability to promote me in his timing? Right? Because that will reveal the audience I'm all ultimately living for. Here's what's so interesting about the book. Does Mordecai get promoted? Yes. <laughs> I like that answer. Eventually? Yeah, eventually. In fact, he gets the second-in-command position. In fact, he ends in this place of honor, but it wasn't God's time to put him in that position. And by the end of the story, it becomes exactly clear why God waited to put Mordecai in that position. And so wherever you feel resentment for not being promoted or acknowledged now, the trust test is this, that ultimately God is the one who's going to promote you in his timing. Right? Humble yourself before the Lord that he might exalt you, what? At the proper time. At the proper time. But, but if ultimately I am living for the attaboy, the adulation of others, I'm going to be disappointed all the time because it's more about me getting what I want when I want it than trusting that if I do things that please God, he'll promote me when he wants to promote me. Does that make sense? All right. So that's test one is that. How do I feel when I'm disregarded? Second, how do I feel when I am disrespected? So we go from the sort of good guy to the really bad guy in the story now. So... Mordecai disses Haman. How does Haman respond when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him? Haman was what? Filled with fury. That's pride, isn't it? Like, pride is everyone in the world can be honoring you, and if one person doesn't, what do you stew on? The one person, right? He's filled with rage. 
But, verse 6 says, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That's an overreaction, right? This is, a, this is a great window into how pride operates. You get slighted, you get furious, but, but here's the thing. Haman could have easily said at this point in the story, what? Kill Mordecai. And someone would have killed Mordecai. He could have at this point, but he doesn't. Why? Because that would look kind of weak and insecure, wouldn't it? A guy bows down, made to kill him right away. No, he, he comes up with a much more cunning plan, which is just, I'm not going to just get this guy. I'm going to exterminate his people. Now, to say that's an overreaction is an extreme understatement. And we know that Persian officials are given to making extreme judgments. We saw that in chapter 1. But, but why, would Haman be more to, uh, why would Haman be motivated to kill all the Jews? This is where we have to take a step back and look at this conflict in the bigger biblical story. We learn two very important details, one about Haman, one about Mordecai. What is Haman? Remember this? He is an Agagite. Great name, Agagite. A descendant of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And if you know anything about the Amalekites in the Old Testament, they're very, very bad. Like arch enemies of God's people. In fact, in Exodus 17, when Israel is running away from Egypt, they're going toward the promised land, they're at their weakest and most vulnerable. Who attacks them? It's the Amalekites. That's who goes after them. And in that moment, after Israel prevails, Moses says this. He has this ominous word that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so now we're, we're brought back in to this conflict here, and, and Haman and, and Mordecai are actually representatives of this far bigger war that's been going on in God's story for a much longer time. So, so not only do you have Haman, who's an Amalekite, you have Mordecai, who's a Benjaminite, and specifically, he's a descendant of King Saul. There's this moment in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Mordecai, is fighting Amalek, and God says, wipe these people out. This is your chance. Utterly destroy and defeat them. And he says, kill the king. Don't take the plunder. What does Saul do? He takes the plunder and doesn't kill the king. And God judges him for that, actually deposes him from the throne. So Saul fails to deal with Amalek. Now, you take all of that. You got a descendant of Saul, a descendant of Agag. You put that together. As a Jewish reader, what are you thinking here? Oh, man, is Mordecai going to blow it again? <laughs> Just like Saul failed to prevail against the Amalekites, is, is Mordecai going to fail again in this age-old conflict that is going on? That's the backstory. And now, in light of that, can you understand why Haman might want to kill more people than just Mordecai? His people have been at war with these people for centuries, centuries 
And he goes, I'm in a position of power. This is actually the perfect time to wipe out Israel just like they tried to wipe out our people and I've got the power to do it. Now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. These, these conflicts have these deep historical roots. I mean, you can't understand what Putin is doing apart from his sincere belief that Ukraine is Russia, right? And it's ancient Russia and it's always been Russia. That's why I should do what I'm doing. It's thousands of years earlier, right? It's what explains what's going on right here in this larger drama. And from a biblical perspective, we see the seed of the serpent through Amalek is waging war against the seed of God here again, and who's going to prevail. You see the bigger picture? That's what's going on. And and now we see just how kind of uh, serpent-like Haman is, because he's clever. He's clever. Look at how he presents his proposal here to King Ahasuerus. He says, uh, there's a certain people, just a certain people, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And you do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the money you're going to plunder from the Jews, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Now, that's a smart way to sell this, isn't it? Don't get too specific. Hey, there's a people, just one. You got this huge kingdom, but we got a problem, right? You know there's threats within your kingdom. Let me tell you about this people. You don't need to worry about who. It's just a certain people. And then his, his description of them, it's this brilliant truth mix of a truth, a half-truth, and a full lie, right? He says, First, they're scattered abroad throughout the, the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. The Jews have been exiled to all of these different parts in Assyria and Babylon and Persia. They're all over the place. That's going to make a king paranoid, isn't it? Huh, they're everywhere. And, and yet, they have these weird customs that are different from other people. And is that true? Yeah, it is sort of true. And the Jews had very unique customs and were set apart from all of these other peoples and were distinct. What's the subtext, though? That's a threat. So there's a half-truth there. Here's the full lie. They don't obey you. In fact, they're, they're revolutionaries with different laws who are everywhere. Now, if I'm the king, what am I thinking? This is an existential threat to my empire. Do what it takes to get rid of them. Haman offers to pay 10,000 talents, which is like what the Persian empire would get in tribute every year. It's an insane amount of money. So Maybe he's just making up a number to sweeten the deal. I have no idea. But in any case, Ahasuerus, who we have come to realize at this point, isn't very sharp. Um, he's an idiot, as we saw last week. He says, sure, money is given to you. Do with what you want. And this sets off the great conflict of the story. Now, you don't have to be plotting a genocide to relate to Haman. Okay? And here's why. What does Haman have that's in our heart? The little Haman in here hates to be slighted, disrespected by people. And often, what pride will do with the slightest offense is globalize it and make it into a huge deal. Because it's not just that 
I was offended. It's that I <laughs> was offended. Me, and it's bad. In fact, it's worse than you can imagine. Have you ever been slighted and then just stewed on it constantly? I mean, here's the amazing thing. Like, after the sermon, 10 people could come up to me and say, that was a great, you don't have to do that, by the way. It was a great <laughs> sermon. If one person comes up to me and goes, eh, what am I going to be thinking about for the rest of the day? That, why, did they, why did they think that? And why would they say that to me? And why would they say that to me right after? Yeah, don't give me negative feedback right after a sermon either, okay? You, just, you can say nothing. No, I'm just kidding. You can give me negative feedback. But isn't that amazing? You can get 10 affirmations and one criticism, and what do you fixate on? The criticism. Why did they do that? And often, when we are slighted or disregarded, our imaginations just take control, and we just create narratives about people to demonize them, to go along with it. I, I've realized this this year that kind of my steady state a lot of times in life, if I'm just quiet, you know what I feel is resentment. Just resentment because of what someone did or, or someone said. And, and my friend asked me about that. He's like, that's, if that's your steady state, why is that? What are you fixated on all the time, Jeff? And I realized, here's the thing, when I'm slighted, I, I go into imagination world my head, I don't know if you go here, but, but even if I perceive that someone has failed me, slighted me, disrespected me in some way, I start creating a narrative about that person and how terrible they are. You ever done this? I did this a few days ago. And I, I realized I did because my, uh, my wife called me out on it. I, I don't know if you've ever done this, um, but, you know, we're, we're among friends here, so this is a safe place. Uh, uh, you start to make up conversations with that person about what they were thinking and what they would say. And I was kind of, I got slighted and I kind of started doing this and I'm walking around the house. And I, I'm thinking about like, well, here's the reason you did that and here's what I would say to you about that and here's why you're wrong, right? And here's why you're an evil person for doing that. And I'm walking around the house and I'm mumbling to myself. And Cashel is like, you're walking around the house mumbling to yourself. And I'm like, yes, I am. And she's like, why? And I'm like, you don't need to know. Right? But, but what is that? It's that prideful imagination that globalizes these things so that we just can't stand. And, and could be that the person who slighted me had no idea. Right? With Haman here, it's not even clear that this is about Haman. Right? Mordecai's got his own issues, and yet we can do that. And so how much do I obsess about being disrespected? Second question. Final question would be this, is do I plan for the future like God does not exist? Am I dismissive of God's providence? Because one thing that's so clear in Esther is that God always gets his way in the end. <laughs> always. In the most improbable, uncanny ways possible. Look at what happens here. This is funny. All right. Haman is determined to kill the Jews. But he wants to make sure that this plan is rock solid. And so he spends a lot of time thinking about it. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, for someone filled with rage, Haman sure doesn't seem that impulsive, does he? In fact, 
He spends all of this time figuring out the best day to kill all the Jews. Now, what is he doing here? What Haman is doing is trying to control fate. He's trying to determine the future beforehand. The Babylonians had this elaborate astrological system. The Persians adopted it. And in Babylonian belief, the best time to determine the future was at the beginning of the year. It was kind of this time when things were open. Things were open to being determined. And so Haman takes this part of the year, and the Hebrew is weird here, but the idea is this, that they are casting these lots, which are like dice, again and again and again to determine the best day and the best month and the best time to carry this out. Basically, they're just trying to lock in the astrological calendar here to make sure everything is going to go perfectly to kill all the Jews. That's the scene. They figure it out. And then the cold machinery of the state kicks in to make sure it happens at exactly the right time. Look at how the passage ends. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring, the king's authority. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day, the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What you see here is the cold machinery of institutional evil. Right, it, All this official government language and all of these servants and all of this machinery just clicks in to send out this message to do something unimaginably evil. And what a contrast at the end, right? After they do it, what do King and Haman sit down to do? To eat and drink, primarily to drink. That's the emphasis. They could care less. While the city of Susa, where the decree is first made, it's in an uproar. It's in complete confusion because all of these Jews who have peacefully lived within this place, all of a sudden there's an order to exterminate them. This is a conscripted army, which just means you would grab people and make it an army. So these neighbors are going to be killing who? Their neighbors. You can see what, why in the world would the king order this to be done and order it a year out to make preparation for it. And all the while, they're just sitting there having a drink. Uh, on January 20th, 1942, you know, a number of German officials gathered at what became known as the, the Wannsee Conference, and they gathered in a very nice suburb of Berlin. They sat in a room full of plush chairs and fine wooden furniture, and there they very quickly agreed on the final solution to the Jewish problem and ordered this decree to exterminate all the Jews. And it was said that the meeting was shorter than the cocktail hour that followed. This is how institutional evil 
works. Decision's been made, the justification's been made, you click in and everything goes seamlessly to accomplish this. And at this point in the story, as we're reading, we, we think things could not be worse for God's people. But, but the author is winking at us here because there's irony in this story. First of all, the day that the order goes out is the 13th day. The day the execution is supposed to be carried out is the 13th day. Is 13 a lucky day? 13 is a very unlucky day. 13 for the Persians was a very unlucky day. So that's funny. Here's the other thing that's funny. The day the decree is made, you can go to the next slide, is the 13th day of the first month. That's when the decree goes out. Do you know what Jews celebrate the next day? Passover. The Exodus. The greatest, most improbable deliverance of God's people. This is God's way of laughing at Haman. Because the minute the Jews hear this decree and they're getting ready to celebrate Passover, what are they going to be wondering? This seems really bad, but God delivered us improbably before. In fact, we're about to celebrate it. Huh. wonder what he's going to do this time. And so the very day of the proclamation of destruction becomes this anticipation of God's deliverance. And God set that all up, right? Because God gets the last laugh in planning for the future. Proverbs 16.33 says what? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from who? The Lord. God gets his way no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we think things go to chance. God always gets his way. And, and so now again, you can't relate to Haman, right? You haven't done this. And yet, in your heart, you can relate to him, and here's how. Do you anticipate the future as if I can be in control of everything or as if God's going to get the last laugh? Right? That's the question. And here's how you know whether you're trusting God with your future or whether you're trusting yourself with your future. How do you react when things don't go according to your plan? And do you see that as God failing you or is God getting the last laugh and saying, I've got a better plan? I've got a plan you couldn't anticipate. Um, I, I like things to go my way a lot. I really do. So I wasn't here last week because we went to the snow. Here's the problem. We never went to the snow. We never got there. Do you know why? Because things didn't go according to my plan. And from my plan, it was a terrible weekend. Can I just be honest? It was terrible. We, went, we were going to the snow. We left on Friday. That's a bad day to leave. We had four kids in the car. And, and, and you know that like the GPS death stare thing when you're looking at it and, and you're driving and the hours don't go down. And they just keep going up. You're trying to calibrate things with the kids. How do we keep them happy? And you're trying to plan. It's not going to go according to plan. It's just not. And we got there too late, and then three out of the four kids got sick. And so we're like, well, there goes the snow. We're going to stay close to the snow, sick together, right? 
And that's vacationing as a parent. It's watching your kids in a new place. That's what it is. <laughs> and now we're watching sick kids in a new place. And we've got the two-month-old we're fostering on one side of the bed. And we've got Omari, who's two years old, on the other side of the bed, and they're both sick. And they're just waking up constantly and waking each other up throughout the night. And you know, if you want to develop a prayer life, <laughs> just be with two sick kids in the middle of the night. So I'm by Omari's pack and play. And my prayer is, shut this child up, God. Please. Please. Right? And we never got to the snow, stayed there, and then drove home. And, and you, know, um, you know what none of my kids said at the end of that weekend? That was terrible. Why did we go? Look at all the things that went wrong. Oh, they didn't care. And you know what I probably didn't do during that weekend is just capitalize on the opportunities I had with my kids because I was so mad that my kingdom was not coming and my will was not being done. And, and so those are the two ways to look at life, right? Is that every day will happiness come from me getting my way or from God getting his, right? And then are the things that are bumps in the roads, are those obstacles to my plan or are they opportunities from God? It's a very different way to look at life, isn't it? It's why the Bible says to pray every day, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because what does our flesh say every day? My kingdom come, my will be done in my life as it is in my head. That's it. So ask yourself, where is your joy going to come from this week? Is it getting your plan accomplished all the time or from God getting his way? And can you see the interruptions is actually providential. God has something better for you that you didn't know about. As we've seen in the book of Esther, there are no pure heroes, are there? And that points us to the need for a better hero. Because Jesus is the great antithesis of Haman and of Mordecai. Jesus doesn't take the higher position. He doesn't seek promotion. In fact, Jesus takes the ultimate demotion and goes from the highest status to the lowest. Jesus, when he is disrespected, he never reviles in return because he's completely confident in his father. Jesus entrusts his future entirely to God. He forfeits his right to a plan independent of his father. Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who dies so that we're not destroyed. That's the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is always the better hero who brings us in. And because he laid down his desire to be first in everything, to save us, that's why he is first to us and deserves our complete devotion. All right, let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal to us um, just how insidious pride is, and, and Lord, that we would check ourselves, that we would test ourselves to see where that self-important attitude is cropping up and be quick to repent. 
Jesus, would we put you first? And, and we praise you, Lord, that you went first to save us. You thought about us and put our interests ahead, Lord, of your comfort and uh, died for us. And so, Jesus, help us to live for you and trust that your will is best. And I pray it for your sake. Amen.